presentation. And thank you and Heather and Ellen and JJ for leading us this morning and on Christmas Eve in our singing and worship. And uh, just appreciate so much everybody's contribution to the life of Cornerstone. You know, uh, it, it takes uh, the body working together to make it all happen. And God is so gracious in raising up people with different talents and, and abilities to uh, help us as a as a body of Christ. This morning, I'll ask, if you will, to turn in your gospel or your Bible to the gospel of Luke chapter 13. We'll continue uh, in the series that I've simply entitled Follow Me, which is the essence of the gospel and the call of Christ to every uh, believer. And just as a matter of uh, brief review in a previous message in chapter 13, taking you back to verses one through nine, we saw where the Lord was revealing to us in that portion of scripture, the absolute need for everyone, everyone to acknowledge their own sinfulness. And not only that, not just to acknowledge it, which would be confession, but also to repent of our sins. If we want to experience God's forgiveness and through that receive the wonderful gift of salvation, then there are no exceptions. And, you know, using the story of the vineyard back in those passages, Jesus talked about the, the vineyard owner who planted a fig tree and so looked forward to the uh, fruitfulness of that tree and, 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 and enjoying a bountiful crop of delicious figs and how disappointed he was by the, the fig tree's inexcusable fruitlessness. In other words, not, not one fig on that tree. And so from that little parable, if you will, that we saw uh, a few lessons that we could glean from that. Number one, our responsibility as God's creations, his special creation created in his image, and then more so as God's redeemed people. God expects us to bear forth spiritual fruit in our lives. He will examine our lives. He is examining our lives as believers. He will hold us accountable on that day of judgment for the fruit or lack thereof in our lives. And God will bring certain judgment upon those who live their whole earthly life and bear no spiritual fruit that would be pleasing to the Lord. And we need to take note of that. Jesus inserted himself into that parable as the tender of the vineyard, the one who actually looked after the plants and including the fig tree. And how when the, the owner of the, vineyard, of the vineyard was ready to chop down that fruitless tree, the, the tender, if you will, the caretaker, that would be Jesus in his role of interceding before the, the master, interceding before God the Father on behalf of those fruitless, uh, that fruitless tree. Or if you insert ourselves into the picture, there's Jesus interceding on your behalf and my behalf and, 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 and calling upon the Father to extend mercy and extend grace that we might be able to repent of our sins and come to the point of being fruitful for him. And as I, you know, as I prepared to preach that, as I preached it, as I thought about it, I inserted my life into that scenario. And, you know, I could see so much of myself in that, that vivid picture of fruitfulness and fruitlessness and judgment and reflecting upon my life, especially as a teenager, as a young adult, I can, I can think back and, and it seemed like it described me during that time. I was living my life. I was enjoying the blessings that God was bestowing upon me 
through family and friends and, and experiences that I was I was having. And yet all the while in the eyes of, of holy God, the God who had created me in his image, the God who had given me physical life, but, you know, had extended to me the opportunity to, to experience eternal life. And yet I was wasting my life as if I was totally unaware of what God was expecting of my life. Then one day the Lord spoke those those loud clarion words that I'll never forget. I can remember the day, I can remember the moment when I could almost audibly hear the Lord Jesus saying to me, come and follow me. You run your route, you've done your thing, you've been absolutely fruitless. Now's the time to get serious, Charlie, and follow me. I'm so thankful that not only did the Lord give me that call, but I am so grateful to God that he gave me the faith to believe what the scripture said about Jesus Christ being the son of God and that he came into this world to die for sinners, including those who were considered themselves to be good people who were going along through life, enjoying the blessings that God had bestowed and yet bearing absolutely no spiritual fruit whatsoever. What an act of mercy. What an example of the grace of God, the patience of God. He could have ended my life at any point along the way and just said, scratch him. He's useless. He's fruitless. But he didn't. And the same gracious and merciful God that spared my eternal life and called me to follow him and I thank God that he did because I found that when I began to live my life for the Lord, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I, I found a, a level of satisfaction and joy and fulfillment that I never could have out there chasing after the things of the world. I think about Hebrews 11:6, where the writer of Hebrews says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must first of all believe that he is and then that he rewards those who seek him. I'm so thankful that God brought me to that point of belief and faith and trust. Now, I'm not saying that my life has been the most fruitful life of any Christian to walk the face of the earth. Of course not. But I am sure standing here today to testify before you that I am a much more fruitful person, believer, child of God than I ever was before I met Jesus Christ and made him the Lord of my life. I pray for every one of you and those who are online. If you have yet to come to that point in your life where you realize that you're a sinner and you understand this penalty of sin is eternal separation from God for eternity and a horrible, hideous place of judgment called hell. I pray that God will bring to you the same opportunity to experience Christ by faith so that you can make that decision to turn your life over to Jesus Christ, to follow him by faith and in doing so bear forth spiritual fruit that one day when we stand before the Lord in judgment, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, that we will receive the rewards, the eternal rewards that we will enjoy in heaven forever because we have bore fruit that pleases God. Don't be a fruitless, empty person. 
God is opening up the door. That's the mini message. You don't get charged for that one, okay? We'll dig into the text of today. But I wanted to go back and just, just bring that back to your mind, the context in which Jesus is talking, Jesus is preaching. He's preaching about the glorious, eternal kingdom of God. And we'll see that. In the text that we're looking at in chapter 13, beginning there in verse 10, the Lord Jesus, by way of demonstration and by divine instruction, unveils the characteristics of the kingdom of God. I don't know if that's just a religious cliche to you or an expression that just kind of, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Or do you really stop and contemplate every time that expression is used that it's real? It's actual. It's going on today, ladies and gentlemen. The kingdom of God is manifested right here in the hearts of every true, genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Not just at Cornerstone, but at any church down the street, across the county, across the state, across the nation, in other countries, in other languages, in other cultures. The kingdom of God has come. Why? Because the king has already come. But that's what we celebrated yesterday. He came as a tiny baby, born of a virgin, and laid in a manger. The king came into the world. He came to his own people, and they did not receive him, as we find out in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But the king has come. And he is on the throne of every heart of every Christian who will receive him and trust him and obey him and follow him. But that's not the ultimate expression of the kingdom of God. I know that. You know that. Anybody reads the scriptures knows that because the king is where he is physically there at the right hand of God, the father doing what? Interceding on your behalf and my behalf. But he's not going to stay there forever, folks. There's a set day. There's a set hour. There's a set minute. There's a set second when the father will say to the son, go and bring my people home. When Jesus comes upon this earth to establish his second in his second coming to establish his reign upon the earth, then the kingdom of God will set fully and completely and absolutely undeniably upon all the earth. Every nation, every tongue, every person that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will fall down before him and worship him. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is present in the hearts and the lives of every Christian. And the kingdom of God is coming in its fullness one day when Jesus returns again. Jesus is all about the kingdom of God. And as we look at this account, we see Jesus giving us glimpses of characteristics of this wonderful kingdom that he will sit on the throne as a, as a king of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's look in chapter 13 at the text beginning in verse 10. Because I want you to see in this verse, first portion of scripture we'll look at this morning, I want you to see, keep in mind, in the back of your mind, it's all about the kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdom of God. And I want you to see the extraordinary power of the kingdom of God. Oh, what power. It's God's kingdom power, if you will. We see it demonstrated right here. In verse 10, it says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. 
This was not a unique experience. Jesus taught in the, in the synagogues. Most of the synagogues in, in Judaism of that time, they would invite traveling teachers, rabbis, to sit in a position of honor and read from and expound upon the, the, the text of God's word, the Old Testament. And so Jesus is doing what he normally does on Sabbath. He's in a synagogue and he's not listening. He's teaching. So follow that. Follow the, the action that develops. He's teaching in the synagogue. We don't know which synagogue is in the area of Judea because that's where his ministry was going on at that time. And, and in verse 11, it says, and behold, that means something notable has suddenly occurred. Of course, we know at the birth of Jesus, and behold, there was a heavenly host, you know, proclaiming the glory of the, of the, uh, the son of God who was just born in Bethlehem. Behold, just kind of say, wait a minute, just stop for a second. Something's happening. If you were there, if you were a fly on the wall of that synagogue, Jesus is going about the process of teaching. Now, this didn't catch Jesus off God because he's the son of God. He's omniscient. He, he knows what is about to happen. And, and so nothing catches him off guard. But if you were a, an observer. And behold, there was a woman. Who had a spirit of infirmity. 18 years and was bent over and could, could in no way raise herself up. Now I want to stop there for a second because you see the scene is being set. The worship service has already started and everybody's listening to Jesus, I'm assuming. And then in comes this woman. I don't think this is her first time to the synagogue. But the thing that would have caught the people's attention was, oh, there she is. Some would probably have been a little bit disgusted. Oh, no, here's that crippled woman again. Oh, how disgusting. It just look at her. She, she's bent over. She's walking. You know, she can't, even look, she can't even stand up. She can't even look up. How do they let people like that in the church anymore? So people are probably looking around and seeing this woman. She wasn't trying to make a scene. She wasn't saying, hey, have pity on me. Have pity on me. She was just coming in to participate in the service. There she was. 18 years. In that crippled position. In verse 12, it says, but... When Jesus saw her, and I don't let these conjunctions just slide by you, but but means there's a change coming on. There's something that is going to happen here, and it did. This is a positive conjunction. Don't look it up in Google and try to go back and grammatically match what I'm saying. That's just my interpretation. Sometimes there are positive buts, and then there's sometimes negative buts. But this is a positive but because Jesus stops his teaching at that point. But when Jesus saw her, remember now, he knew she was coming. He knew that the day before. He knew that the week before. He knew that the year before. But the fact is, here she is. There Jesus is. And he called her to him. Come over here. And he addresses her. Now, I notice how anonymous this is. He didn't, he didn't call her by her name, and he doesn't speak to her by her name. 
As if Jesus is saying, what I'm going to do demonstrates a principle of my ministry. Pay attention. But he did call over and he said, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. Wow. All of a sudden. So when he's talking about this, it helps us to understand that the, the kingdom of God represented in Christ is, is a powerful, powerful kingdom. It manifests the power to heal the hopelessly disabled. There was no cure for this woman's condition. Even if they had known about something like a, a spine altering illness like scoliosis or something like that at that time, they didn't know how to treat it, diagnose it or whatever. Jesus knew what the cause was. Because listen to what he says. You are loosed. Something's got a hold of her. Or better still, someone's got a hold of her. We'll see who that is. In fact, in chapter 16, he, Jesus even nails it. He says, Satan has bound this woman. Think about it for 18 years. Be loose from this bond on the south. So you see, Jesus knew the source. This was a this was a cruel, diabolical act of Satan to cripple a woman to keep her from having a, a productive life. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Satan still uses the same tactics. He's crippling people left and right. He's crippling people from keeping them from being able to be all that God would have them to be, to discourage them. He cripples them with, with sinful habits. He cripples them with sinful relationships. He cripples them with desires of the flesh. He cripples them with drugs and, and alcohol and stealing. Oh, I could go on and on and on with the things that Satan will cripple people with. He enjoys it. He enjoys it because he's evil. And just think about it. In that condition, she was probably the object of all sorts of social and religious ostracism. We found in the passages early in chapter 13 how people, Judaism, for instance, would oftentimes associate disabilities or calamities or disasters. They would say, oh, oh that person must have sinned. Kind of like Job's friends. Oh, Job, come on. We know. Why don't you admit it? You're suffering so terribly because somewhere you're hiding sin. You know it and we know it. That wasn't the case. But there's no telling what this woman had suffered, not just physically, but emotionally. And yet Jesus, in this positive conjunction, radically, compassionately, and mercifully will change her life forever for the rest of her life and you know that's the thing that we need to keep in mind today as god's people the lord is in the business of freeing people from crippling effects of sin our prisons are full our jails are full our institutions are full of people that are crippled by satan and by sin we know that disease and disabilities comes under the curse of sin. So our Lord is still in the business of demonstrating 
the power of the kingdom of God by liberating those who are under sin's crippling effects today. Now think about how the apostle Paul reminds us in verse or chapter five, verse 18 of the book of Ephesians. When Paul is saying, therefore, you were once talking to those Christians at Ephesus. He says, now, don't get too smug and too puffed, puffed up and, and, and prideful. He says, just remember that you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Don't forget what God has done for you. But then also in Colossians chapter one, in Chapter 1, verse 21, Paul again to the church at Colossae, to the Christians at that church. There in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. Folks, every one of us at one point in our life we were hideously crippled by the effects of sin. Our souls were darkened against God, alienated from the kingdom of God. And yet God, by his mercy, would reach out to free us from the effects, the crippling effects of sin. How exhilarating, how inspiring it is to me when I hear people give a testimony about their coming to Jesus Christ, you've heard them. I've gone to Baptist meetings. I've gone to other Christian gatherings. I've, I've, I've watched uh, um, Christian uh, programs in which there'd be somebody who, who was living a life of sin. They were crippled uh, socially. They were crippled uh, uh, economically they couldn't they couldn't earn a living they were they were virtually just wasting their lives and then someone shared the good news of the gospel and Jesus stepped in and he straightened them up just like he straightens this woman in this the passage we're looking at today listen Jesus comes to 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 reveal the extraordinary power of the kingdom of God we have that power accessible to us through our faith relationship with Jesus Christ. You have the power of the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have the power of the authority of the Word of God with you to speak hope into hopeless lives. To bring joy to lives that are darkened by circumstances and sin. Oh, don't underestimate the power of the kingdom of God. But Jesus also came to reveal the exceptional love of the kingdom of God. Don't miss the love factor here, folks. It's not just about healing power. It's about the heart of God being displayed and demonstrated to this woman through his son. You see, Judaism of that day, as we found, was driven by legalism. The kingdom of God is driven by love. We're not about rules. We're not about beating people over the head with the Bible. We're not about setting our own man-made regulations and as if to whip people into line, that they have to act a certain way and tote a certain translation of the Bible or wear certain clothes or what. No, we're not into that. 
The, but Judaism of that day was driven by legalism. Jesus came to reveal the fact that the kingdom of God is driven by love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In this, the love of God was demonstrated towards us. And while we were still sinners, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who would die for our sins. It's all about God's love. We know that Judaism was driven by legalism because in the next portion there, if you look at verse 14, by the way, in verse 13, let's just go back and look. And he laid his hand on her and immediately she, she was made straight and glorified God. Don't miss that. I thought it was interesting because in conveying the love of God and the power of God at the same time, did you notice that Jesus not only spoke to her, she probably gone a long time in her life where nobody would even acknowledge her. All crippled and bent over and pitiful. Nobody would stop. How are you doing today? How can I pray for you? Is there something I can help? Oh, no. More than likely, people just sloughed her off. She was so insignificant. It was disgusting. And yet the Son of God would speak to her. She was hearing the voice of God. Folks, that'll give hope. That'll bring life. I heard the voice of God in my heart, in my soul, when he said, come, follow me. You've heard the voice of God in your heart when he spoke to you and, and, and gave you that, that message of hope and life through faith in Jesus Christ. And now the Son of God, the voice of God is speaking to her. But not only that, Jesus reaches out and he puts his hand on her. She's feeling the hand of God upon her life. When God speaks and he touches, let me tell you something. Life is never going to be the same. And it wouldn't be for that woman. It wasn't for me. And it won't be for you either. You want to hear from the Lord. You want to feel his touch. And as a result of the touch of God, she was able to do something she had not done in 18 years. Not 18 days. 18 weeks, 18 months, 18 years. She'd seen more of the earth and the gravel and the dirt than she'd ever seen of the sky and the stars and the wonders of heaven. And imagine suddenly, just like that, she straightens up. She's looking in a perspective. She can look straight into the eyes of other people. She can see the faces. She can look up into the trees and she can see the birds. She can see the sun shining. Oh, listen, look what Jesus gave her. Why? Because God loves her. In contrast, in verse 14, to the love of God, look at the legalism represented in the ruler of the synagogue. And we know through stories like the story of Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue was a man of prominence in the community, a man who had social power because the synagogue was a life center of Jewish communities. And he arranged the teaching and the preaching in the, in the synagogues. He oversaw all the social engagements, weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that. He was a pretty prominent person. So when he spoke, people listened. Unfortunately, what he's saying in this occasion is not a wholesome and a healthy thing. Now, mind you, the woman who'd been crippled for 18 years suddenly now standing up. And you saw there at the end of that verse 13, and she glorified God. 
I don't know about you, but I just imagine a person who'd never been able to straighten up for 18 years, suddenly standing up straight and looking up into the heavens and raising her hands to God for the first time in her life. And say, oh God, thank you. Thank you. I can live now. I've got a life now. Thank you, God. God, to you be the glory. To you be the glory. You'd think there'd be a celebration going on. But now here's the second conjunction. This is the negative conjunction. I just told you the positive, but here's the negative, but. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Oh, he's upset. He's in old country expression. He's torn up inside. And he answered with indignation because with because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. That dare him heal somebody on the Sabbath. Duh. Jesus, don't you get it? Today's the Sabbath. Talk about an original party pooper. Downer Debbie or Douglas, whatever his name was. And he said to the crowd, he doesn't even give Jesus the dignity of looking into his eyes. and His, 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 his issues with Jesus, you know that, I know that, the crowd knew, knew that. But he, he, with his nose up in the air and his chest puffed out in his regal robes or whatever, he's talking to the crowd as if Jesus didn't even dignify an answer. So he's saying to the crowd, look, I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. There are six days, six, count them. There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, not on the Sabbath day. He's trying to shame the woman. He's trying to, to discredit Jesus. And I love how Jesus responds. Jesus let him do his little rant, get it off his chest. And the Lord doesn't say, no, 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 Mr. Synagogue ruler, I respect your position of authority and I understand your sentiments of being so, so uh, diligent to keep the law. And No, that's not our Jesus, not in the face of evil and sin. The Lord then answered him. You notice that Jesus didn't say, oh, to the crowd, even though the crowd's listening. Jesus is going one-on-one -on -one with this evil and, and uh, sinful and hypocritical leader. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite! You actor! You fake! That's pretty strong. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox and his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? Now Jesus is talking to the crowd, but he's talking to the synagogue ruler too. He could have asked, how many of you got donkeys? Hands up. They didn't have golf carts and cars and motorcycles. Okay, okay. Uh, how many of you have oxen? Hands up. In other words, everybody hit livestock. So Jesus is just giving them a very practical illustration. He said, now, how many of you take your donkey on, on the Sabbath? 
when it's thirsting, about to drop over from dehydration? How many of you are going to take your donkey and lead it down to the water and drink water or your oxen or whatever it may be? In other words, on the Sabbath, you're going to show mercy to your creatures of, of labor, your animals of work, burden. You're going to show mercy towards them. And now he, he really fine-tunes in verse six, 16. So ought not, he's asking it. So ought not this woman, points to her, being a daughter of Abraham. She's a Jewish woman. She's a descendant of Abraham. She's one of us. Whom Satan has bound. Think of it. For 18 years. Be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. He's put in the synagogue ruler to shame. How dare you shackle this woman with empty legalism that that makes you look such so hypocritical when you would extend more mercy to your animals than you would this woman created in the image of God and who is a descendant of Abraham who has lived a miserable life because she's been bound by the devil and here you are saying, oh no, you can't do it today. Jesus demonstrated the mercy and the love of God to this woman when he reached out to heal her. You'll notice that he, she doesn't solicit. Jesus takes the initiative. She didn't walk in and say, oh, by the way, uh, I understand you can heal people. Would you? No. No. Didn't. Did you notice there's no mention of faith? Jesus wasn't waiting for her to make a profession of faith and say, I'm going to do this. But folks, listen. When the Son of God, the Lord Almighty, decides he needs to do something for the advancement of his kingdom, he's going to do it. He knew from the beginning of, of the history of humanity, from the foundation of the world, he knew this day would come. He knew this woman was coming into the synagogue. He knew that he was going to heal her. Certainly to benefit her life, but infinitely more important to introduce the characteristics of the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is about. It's about the power of God that is stronger than Satan's hold on anybody. It's about a love that looks far beyond legalism and embraces people with the unconditional love of God and gives them life and hope. And just as this encounter between Jesus and the religious leader, the synagogue leader, was a confrontation, no doubt, it generated humiliation. Because after what Jesus said, look at verse 17. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries, now notice it said all of his adversaries, I dare say there were other religious leaders in, in the crowd that day who were probably, you know, doing the right on, you know, to the synagogue leader when he was confronting Jesus. There were other religious leaders there. 
But after hearing what Jesus just said, you see, Jesus knew, they knew. There's nothing in the law of Moses that prohibits showing mercy on the Sabbath day. Nothing. There's nothing in the rabbinical writings that says you can't extend mercy on the Sabbath. Jesus had just totally disarmed them. And it says there in verse 17, and when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. Oh, my goodness. I imagine that synagogue leader wanted to transfer to another synagogue after that. But I speculate here. Luke says, and all his, who? Jesus' adversaries were put to shame. What about the demons that Satan had sent to bind this woman? And now the Son of God steps up and with one spoken word undid their diabolical deed on this woman. I, I dare say there were a few demons running for their lives at that point too. They were put to shame. Why? Because their measly, diabolical, Satan-given power is Nothing against the power of God. And Jesus had demonstrated that over and over and over and over. He was over the power of, of demons. He was greater than the power of sickness. He was greater than the power of the natural forces. Even the storms out at sea. Jesus could just speak and he could calm the waves. And they would be like a puppy dog laying down in front of him. Oh, what power. But Mingled with that power is love like they've never seen before. Wow. And that's the same Jesus when he looked upon us in our crippled, sinful lives and our unfruitful lives. And he saw with pity how absolutely twisted we were spiritually and undone. And he reached out to us in the love of God and demonstrated us God's love. And then with his own power running through the veins of his own body, he died on the cross and shed absolutely sinless atoning blood. And that blood was given through the love of God. And we profess faith in the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us. And in cleansing us from our sins, it breaks the chains of the devil and sin. And he, is, he frees us too. Well, I want to move on. Because on the heels of this episode, this encounter. Oh, oh one other thing too. Don't want to miss this. After the adversaries in verse 17 have been put to shame. Don't, don't, list, don't miss the last part. The woman has already broke into worship. <laughs> Irregardless of what the synagogue leader said, this, this, this lady is praising God. And who would? But after Jesus has put the synagogue leader and his buddies and even the demons in their place, they're shamed. It says at the end of verse 17, and the multitude rejoice. For all the glorious things done by him. You could pick out of that crowd any of, any of the people in that crowd that day. 
and, and probably asked them, have you been disgusted by or disgraced by or belittled by the legalistic minds of the leaders of our, and I believe if, if you were to ask to raise their hands, hands would have gone up all through that crowd. Yes, I have. I have. I've been made to feel like a worm by them. I've been made to feel like I'm a heathen by them. I've been made to look like I don't deserve to be a part of God's kingdom by them. Oh, they're always raising their haughty noses up to us and putting us down as if we don't qualify for God's grace, love, and mercy. Oh, no. Listen, they knew. They knew. And when Jesus did what he did there and he established two clear characteristics of the kingdom of God, that there is extraordinary power, there's exceptional love. Listen, this is a breath of fresh air to a group of people under Jewish legalism. And they cheered. And they rejoiced. Well, that didn't disrupt Jesus because he went on to, to, to teach Two parables, two twin parables that get at the same point, and I'll quickly bring those right before you. Because if you look with me at verse 18, Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden. And it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in it. So you see, Jesus has got their attention on the kingdom of God. And he says, let me tell you something. <laughs> There's another characteristic of the, God, of, of the kingdom of God. It, it, it involves exponential growth. Don't, have you ever heard this expression? Don't judge a book by the cover? You know? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the greatest surprises come in small packages, don't they? Jesus is saying, look, don't judge the kingdom because it's small right now. Just like a man who had a mustard seed. Now, in tobacco land, see, scholars say he used the mustard seed because it was one of the smallest seeds. And it is. I've got a couple of mustard seeds on my desk, but they're real tiny, like a grain of sand almost. But Jesus says you, but in, and the reason I mentioned tobacco land, my dad grew tobacco. A tobacco seed is actually smaller than a mustard seed. But Jesus was over there in the Middle East. He went over here in North America where the Indians were growing tobacco. So you forget the tobacco seed. But anyway, the mustard seed, tiny little grain of a seed, seed gets planted in the ground, come back later after it's grown. And this, this little seed sapling is now 15 feet tall. <laughs> That's a tree. I mean, it's taller than me. <laughs> Y'all said I'm a stump's taller than you, preacher. But anyway, not only is it tall and impressive, but the limbs are so strong that even birds can perch, not just perch, they can build their permanent homes on the limbs and they don't break. He says the kingdom of God is like that. It starts out small. And, I, and Jesus is teaching that, I believe, so that his disciples will look back and reflect. When, the, when Jesus is, is resurrected and, and ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father, and here they are. They're, they're on the earth. How many, how many <laughs> disciples did Jesus have at the point of his ascension? Not 12, because Judas is gone. 11. And they're looking around at each other. James to Andrew, Andrew to Peter, you know, Matthew. And they said, uh, 
we're the kingdom of God. <laughs> and some wise disciples said, oh, but don't forget what the master said. We are the mustard seed. Jesus goes on, twin parables, same point. There's the, 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 the agrarian parable of the planting of the mustard seed. He said, that's, that's like the kingdom of God. It's going to grow exponentially, be so big, birds can perch in it and build a nest. But then for the sake of the ladies in the crowd. <clears throat> so you women who are always baking fresh homemade bread, I know, amen. Um, bring a few loaves to your pastor. But anyway, <laughs> in verse 20, he says, and again, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures, which is the equivalent, by the way, of two pecks. He said, who? Who uses pecks anymore? The woodpeckers. Uh, three measures, which be it'd be the equivalent of a half of a bushel. Any of you ladies ever bake a half a bushel of bread? <laughs> That's a lot of bread. I mean, we had eleven kids in our family. My mother was always baking homemade bread, and she probably did break half a bushel. But anyway, that's a lot of bread. But but that's a lot of dough. A half a bushel of dough. And Jesus says, guess what? The kingdom of God is like little pieces of yeast that a woman sticks into a half a bushel of dough. She goes out and leaves it in a dark place, comes back and poof, the whole half a bushel is totally leavened. It's ready to make yeast bread. Isn't that amazing? Little piece of yeast and the whole thing. Jesus said, that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. When we feel small, when we feel somewhat insignificant, as if, oh my goodness, look at poor old Lord Cornerstone Baptist Church down here. What impact can we make upon the, on the world? Let me tell you something. We're not alone. We're not alone. That's why we like to pray for like-minded churches because we want to lift them up in prayer because they've lifted us up in prayer and we join together in doing great things to reach the community around us with the gospel. We reach across the state to share the gospel with lost people, reaching all across the world. When we give to the Loudoun Moon Christmas offering to support our international missionaries, ladies and gentlemen, you've got missionaries, men and women, sometimes with their, ba their little babies and their children who are planted in countries that you don't even know about. And you won't know about until you get to glory because they're having to protect their anonymity lest they be discovered and harmed. But all over the world in languages that you and I can't even imagine in cultures that we never would have seen. Listen, the kingdom of God is growing. I'd like to see it bigger, but the fact is, that's all right. Jesus says that 11 that little handful of 11 that stood on the side of the mountain watching Jesus go up into heaven looked at each other kind of pitifully like, we're it? Had no idea that given the march of time that over the centuries there would be not thousands more, not millions more, but through the march of history there will be billions of people who lift their voices up and praise the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Doing what we can to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. That's why we pray in that model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And when we go out boldly and live a life that is transparent of the love and the grace and the mercy and the power of the gospel and the kingdom of God, you are like yeast. You're spreading. That's why Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Have an influence. 
externally and internally. The kingdom of God. But folks, don't put your fork away yet. It's an old country expression. After you finish a big bulk and meal, you know, you're just getting ready to push back from the table and the hostess will say, don't, oh boys, don't, don't put your fork down yet. The best is yet to come. In other words, there's dessert coming. Homemade coconut pie, coconut cake, banana pudding, cobbles. Oh, listen, don't, don't get rid of your fork because the best is yet to come. Hey, Christians, don't put away your fork. Because one day the best is yet to come. The trumpet will sound and Jesus will come from heaven with all the heavenly host. And he will establish his kingdom upon this earth. And every human being left will bow the knee and praise the name of Jesus Christ. Because the kingdom of God will be as far as you can see. From the east to the west. Oh, hallelujah. I don't know about you. That makes me great grateful. That the Lord has included me in his wonderful kingdom plan. I trust that you are. I pray, I pray that you're yielded to the leadership of the Lord. Living our lives is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our prominence. It's not about our accumulation of things. Living this life on this earth for the time that God allows us is about living for the king. And representing his kingdom faithfully. That's the desire of my heart to the day I leave this world. I hope it is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in so many wonderful ways through the life, the love, the power, and the example of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for including us in your glorious eternal plan of your kingdom. And while we admit we only get a glimpse of, of your kingdom manifestation here on the earth right now, Lord, there's more coming. And there's more out there even right now, Lord, that we don't even see. Oh, God, praise your holy name. There's no force, no power, no principality that can ever hinder the onward march of the kingdom of God. One day you shall reign and you shall reign completely and you shall reign eternally and every knee will bow. Those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and every voice, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for that we thank you, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be fruitful. And help us to represent you totally in the world in which we live. We thank you. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kim, I'll ask if you will come and close our services. Lord, lead you, please.